You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I am going to be taking a look at issue 18 of The Nom, which, while it doesn't wrap up just a, ye- a year just yet, does wrap up a running storyline and sees the departure of a character who's played a major role in the last few issues. Our song around this time around is Windy by The Association, a song that Quite frankly, I'd never heard of prior to choosing some music for this podcast, but Windy was number one for the entire month of July 1967, and that's the reason I chose it for our episode. I was only familiar with the association through the song Cherish, which I first heard on an episode of The Wonder Years back in 1988. Uh, And that's a show that is not on DVD, but I haven't sat and watched for quite a number of years. Uh, speaking of what's on DVD, if you're looking for something really good about the Vietnam War, uh, China Beach, the entire series, has been released on DVD as of my recording this. Uh, I've only seen a couple of episodes of the show. It was a critical darling in the late 80s. I do remember liking what I've seen of it. Unfortunately, I don't have the money to shell out for the DVD box set, but I'm hoping that Netflix or Hulu or somebody picks it up at some point and, uh, or Amazon starts offering downloads of individual episodes and whatnot. I will uh, be able to view it through, through there. But if you do have the money and want to go check it out, uh, go to TwoTrueFreaks.com, click the Amazon link, and uh, go to the home, uh, on the homepage there, and you'll be sent right to Amazon. You can and you can buy it and the guys over there get a referral fee Uh, there's no cost to you but it does help out some great podcasts but as for this podcast i'm going to go ahead and get started on my coverage of the nom number 18 this was cover dated may 1988 it came out on january 26 1988 what should be noted is that the cover price jumped and it jumped from 75 cents to a dollar 25 it's crazy, and it's a crazy increase, and it wasn't due to the rising cost of production or because because uh, if you look around around the time, most other basic comic books, your Spider-Man, your Superman, your Batman, were still 75 cents. The reason for the price and jump of this book was that uh, the nom went completely to the direct market with this issue, and therefore it was printed on more expensive paper. I'll get into the history and background behind this in my review, but for now, let's get through the story. The Bomb's Bursting was written by Doug Murray, penciled by Wayne Van Sant, inked by Jeff Isherwood, lettered and colored by Phil Felix, and edited by Mike Higgins. Larry Hama was the consulting editor. Pat Redding was the managing editor. Mike Rockwitz was the assistant editor. Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. The cover is by John Beatty and shows Clark punching a larnick while the rain falls around them. It's July of 1967, and we open at the base hospital at Chu Chi. Specialist Light who you will remember was a, was wounded back in issue 14, is sitting in a hospital bed smoking a cigarette, while Clark tells him how much of a nut job Alarnik has been proving to be. 
Jane, a nurse, tells Clark that Light needs some time to rest. He asks her if she needs a break. They head to the PX for a soda, and she listens to him talk about how bad things are getting with Alarnik in charge. She puts her hand on his, and we shift over to the chaplain's office, where Rob is unloading in the same way. The chaplain wants to know what he's supposed to do about it, and Rob, clearly desperate, says that he's tried talking to everyone, but nothing seems to be getting done. The chaplain suggests, well, we won't exactly get what the chaplain suggests. He just says if things don't improve after his suggestion, Rob should come back to see him. Rob returns to the hooch and tells the guys that no, there's nothing they can do. The guys say that there must be something, and he sighs and tells them to figure it out for themselves. We then shift to a jungle scene where Alarnik is leading Rob along a path, then all of a sudden there's incoming fire. Next thing we know, Alarnik is holding up a body bag and telling him that there's room for one more. Clearly, Rob's having a nightmare, and he's awoken by an enemy attack. The next morning, he tells the guys about the dream, and they tell him to cool it because, well, letting it get to him will not help. The day after that, the 23rd saddles up and heads out once again, trudging through the rain to check out another village. Alarnik says that they're supposed to check out the village to see if it's a supply depot, so it should be a walk in the woods. Suddenly, they're hit by an RPG attack and duck for cover. They don't seem to be hitting anything, however, mainly because we can't really see if anything is there. Rob tells the guys to stop wasting ammo, and Alarnik asks for a headcount. Rob says that they're all okay, and Alarnik wants to know about the VC headcount. There aren't any to be seen, which annoys the lieutenant, and they head to the village. Things are typical for the village. There are people out of their homes, even though it's raining, and one guy tells him that he speaks English and will help the brave Americans. The guys check all the homes, and one of them finds a VC hiding out under the floor of a house. He's dragged into the town square, and Alarnik tells the guy to get all the villagers into the square, pretty excited that he actually has a prisoner. As the villagers gather, the men of the 23rd find piles of AK-47s, and Alarnik asks the guy who had been speaking English where it all came from. He says that the VC left it, and they threatened to kill everyone if he didn't let them. Alarnik wants to know where they are hiding that guy and starts screaming that they're all VC. It's that moment where the captured VC soldier shouts, tell him nothing, and spits on Alarnik, who responds by shooting him in the head. Rob grabs Alarnik, who responds by accusing him of attacking a superior officer. He calls Phillips over to arrest Rob, and that is enough to distract Phillips from the girl standing next to him who has just pulled the pin on a grenade. Rob sees the grenade and tackles Alarnik. Phillips responds by opening fire and several villagers are gunned down. Meanwhile, Clark tends to Rob while Alarnik screams about how he's bleeding and needs help. Clark says that Alarnik will be okay, but Rob is hurt really bad and he requests the dust off. Alarnik screams that he's in command and he'll be helped first. He grabs Clark by the collar, to which Clark responds by punching him right in the jaw. The dust off is called in and his choppers show up. Alarnik screams at Clark that he'll get court-martialed for what he just did. They load Rob into the chopper and Phillips warns Clark that Alarnik's nuts, and he needs to watch his back. Clark says he will, and he tells Phillips to get everyone back to safety. Phillips and the guys torch the village and head on out, while hours later in the hospital, Janie tells Clark that it's no use waiting for Rob to get out of surgery because it's going to take hours. Clark asks if he'll make it. She says he, she thinks so, but he may lose a leg. Lieutenant, he only has a few facial lacerations. The last two pages consist of 12 panels, all of the buildings of the BUQ, or bachelor officer's quarters. On the left, there is a large puddle, and on the right, an open window with a box sitting on the, on the adjacent desk. In the second and third panels, we see a person walking toward us, and then he's stopped by someone who says, Figured I could find you here, Andy. Let's have a talk. Clark, who's been walking toward us, says, You arresting me, Top? Roland replies, Not likely. From all accounts, the one we should be arresting is that crazy brown bar. 
Roland and Clark begin walking away from the buildings as the light clicks on in the window on the right. The light's still on as Roland says, Come on now, let's get some sleep and discuss this in the morning. Sure, we can all work this all out when people's tempers aren't so frayed. How's Rob? We see a Larnick walk into view in the room on the right-hand side of the panels as Clark replies, He'll live. May lose a leg, though. That's tough, Roland says. I'll see about a proper decoration. You think the lieutenant will sign that? Clark asks. Roland replies, Maybe that won't be as big a problem as you think. Get some sleep now. And on the right-hand side of the panel, in the room with the open window, we see a Larnick open the box that was on the table and gasp a moment before the box explodes. Man! It's a great ending to the story. Twelve panels over two pages and a conversation, and honestly, you really didn't don't notice the box on the table until the second or third panel on page 30, when Alarnik walks into the room, sees it, and picks it up. Van Sant and Eicher would put it just enough in our view for us to notice that it's there, but make it inconspicuous enough for us not to really give it a second thought. And what's great about the end of the story is that you can't exactly tell who left the package. The immediate evidence points to Roland, who was in the fourth panel on 29. He just kind of appears in the street right next to the BOQ building. But based on the number of people who have been fed up with Alarnik throughout the last few issues, especially in this issue, it could have been anyone in the 23rd, except for like Rob, who's in the hospital. It could have even been the chaplain. After all, we don't know what he really said. But who did this really isn't important because it's the culmination of all of Alarnik's arrogance over the last few issues. And in a way, you don't mind him seeing him getting fragged because he was set up as an antagonist and definitely needed to get his. Now, back to the beginning of the issue. I'm glad we got an update on Light, and I'm glad that Murray keeps tabs on his characters. I can't exactly remember what happens to Rob from here on out, but I'm pretty sure we'll find out in addition perhaps to Ramnarine and any of the other guys who aren't around at the moment. And Murray or Van Sant or someone cleverly sneaks some profanity onto page one. If you look at the wall behind light on the left-hand side, it's, there, there is some graffiti. It's, it reads D-I-L-L-I-G-A-F, in quotation marks with a question, which stands for, do I look like I give a f***? So... It's pretty clever. We get a little more character development with Clark, who is kind of annoying at first with all the stories, but here you see he's really caring, he's really compassionate, and he's almost like a veteran version of Ed Marks, because he's not as naive. Rob's frustration when he goes to see the chaplain is well conveyed, as is the stress that he's obviously under, because I don't know about you, but I have wacky dreams about work whenever I'm under a lot of stress. (laughs) I must say that the artwork in this issue is amazing. And part of that does come from the higher quality paper. Phil Felix's colors pop off the page, and the fact that Van Sant and Aisha would pay attention to the backgrounds really helps make the better paper a true improvement. This was rare back in the mid to late 80s, when some books went to direct market editions with Baxter or similar types of paper. That's because not every artist working in comics paid a lot of attention to the detail necessarily for a good background. Of course, George Perez was very detail-oriented, and if you ever read the first five issues of New Teen Titans, as well as the issues uh, where he returned in 1990, Perez's art is just, is just beautiful, and it's part of that has to do with the fact that it's on better paper. But if you read the issues that Eduardo Barreto did on the title, they're a bit lacking. It's nothing against Eduardo Barreto as an artist. He just wasn't served very well by the Baxter paper. In fact, if you hunt down the Tales of the Teen Titans issues that reprinted the Baxter series, you'll see that the older paper, which tended to absorb the artwork instead of making it look like it was kind of sitting on top of it, actually suited Barreto's art better. They actually look like they're better issues. 
this isn't a Titans podcast. It's a non-podcast, though. And 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 it was my very roundabout way of saying that Van Sant and Isherwood's detail really makes this artwork amazing. The splash page of a bulldozer moving debris after the Charlie attack on page 8 is well rendered, as is the action in the jungle, which is an action sequence that is, well, there wasn't so much that was special about it in that it was the same type of village sweep we've been seeing a lot of lately. But Van Sant and I sure would never forget that it's raining, and Murray writes Alarnik's arrogance as something that we just expect, as if it's inherent to his character. A characteristic, by the way, that almost gets him killed in another sequence that is done well. On page 18, we have six panels. Rob pulls Alarnik away with the gun still smoking from having shot the VC. Then we get a shot of Phillips turning and looking at the two of them, and if you're not looking closely enough, you miss that the girl in the panel who is standing behind Phillips has reached into her blouse. Then we get an above shot of Alarnik berating Rob for pulling him away, another shot of Phillips where we can clearly see her pulling the pin on the grenade, another shot of Rob and Alarnik, and then finally a shot of the girl's hand as she tosses the grenade toward the GIs. It's an effective use of camera angles and cutaways to show how much can go on when you're not looking. As much as I was happy to see Alarnik get his at the end, I have to say that I'm sad to see Rob get hurt. He was a guy I'd really grown attached to over the course of the last 18 issues, especially after he told off top and became a good friend to Ed Marks. I know it's likely that he'll survive, but honestly, it it honestly sucks that he got his leg blown off saving Alarnik, who wouldn't even have done the same for him. Man, Doug Murray, you really know how to make us feel something, don't you? Now, as for the direct market issue, Doug Murray explained this was this in an interview he did with Comic Resources, uh, Comic Book Resources Pop Column on November 9th, 2008, which was written by Jorge Curry. In the last few paragraphs of the piece, he talks about how things went sour in his last 20 or so issues on the title, saying, Hama left Marvel, I guess. We were on issue 17 or 18. It was after the decision was made to go completely direct sales, which we didn't like because we were selling 300-plus thousand copies a month. We were Marvel's number two, number three seller, and we were selling almost exactly 50% to comic stores and 50% to newsstands because our stuff wasn't the normal superhero stuff. The marketing department made the decision to go direct sales only, and Hama tried to fight it, but he was basically told that there was nothing he could do about it. And at the same time, Shooter left the company, and Hama, who was the senior editor, probably should have taken his place, but the Falco took his place instead, so Hama took a job elsewhere. Hama's assistant was a girl named Pat Redding, who was also a pretty good editor. She took over as editor, and she did, and she and I did fine together. He then went on to talk about uh, the next editor came in, whom he really clashed, and why he'd leave. And his last issue officially was fifty-one. Oh, those, oh, his last two or three issues were inventory issues, space between some Chuck Dixon, Dixon stories and other ones, uh, and then Don Lo, Chuck Dixon and Don Lomax would have lengthy runs on the title after that. And I can see what he means. At the time this book was being published, there were still a number of comics sold on newsstands, and some of them still sold very well in that market. While the direct market had gained serious traction in the three or four previous years, and many books by the big two were published just direct market, not everything was there yet. And it, honestly, if the NOM was putting up the sales numbers that Marie says it was putting up in the interview, then there was no logical reason for it to be pulled, unless it is that the number was too low for the time. Unfortunately, I don't have a sales figure chart from 88, and I wasn't able to find one, but I do know that 300,000 copies a month would be more than enough for the NOM to keep going in 2014. 
And I'm sure that a direct-only sales approach, while it wasn't the death knell for the series after all it went all the way to issue 84, didn't help as it didn't help other series that went direct only too early. For instance, the aforementioned New Teen Titans. Granted, that story had storyline issues. Of course, if you've ever read the Titans from 85, 86, there was massive storyline issues with that. But there was that issue of availability. Then again, this was an interesting time for the comics industry because there was so much experimentation with the direct market right before the boom really hit toward the end of 88 and the beginning of 89. And I'm going to take a break. Uh, When I come back, I'll have historical context, letters, and ads. This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. This July 28th, In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, presents All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm Tom Panneries, and to commemorate the centennial of the First World War, I will be dedicating a special episode to Eric Maria Remarque's all-time classic war novel, Along with the look at the novel, I will discuss two film adaptations and then take a quick glance at poetry and songs of the war to end all wars. That's this July 28th at incountry.podomatic.com. And we're back. Fragging which is what happened to Alarnik in this issue, was a way of killing one's superior officer, usually with a fragmented grenade. The reason it was done in this way was because the weapon was destroyed along with the person being fragged, so it was easy to do this anonymously. Motivation was usually some sort of grievance with a superior or someone else, and usually when all the options had been exhausted. I actually looked it up on Wikipedia, and the page has this to say about one of the most famous fragging incidents of the Vietnam War. On April 21st, 1969, a grenade was thrown into the company office of K Company, 9th Marines at Quang Tri Combat Base, RVN. First Lieutenant Robert T. Roweiler died of wounds he received in the explosion. Private Reginald F. Smith pleaded guilty to the premeditated murder of Roweiler and was sentenced to 40 years imprisonment. He died in custody on the 25th of June, 1982. On March 15, 1971, a grenade tossed into an officer billet at Bien Hoa Army Airfield killed Lieutenants Thomas A. Delwo and Richard E. Harlan of the 1st Cavalry Division. Private E-2 Billy Dean Smith was charged with killing the officers, but was acquitted in November of 72. Now, as for July of 1967, during the month, General Westmoreland requests another 200,000 troops on top of the 475,000 already in Vietnam. President Johnson denies the request. He only sends 45,000. On July 7th, the North Vietnamese Army begins what will be a three-phase major offensive. The first is to hit border towns and outlying areas so that U.S. troops will be drawn away from the cities in Vietnam. That's what takes place during this particular time. Later, Phase 2 will be what is known as the Tet Offensive. Phase 3 will be a full-scale invasion of South Vietnam. Finally, on July 29th, a fire on the USS Forrestal kills 134 crew members in the Gulf of Tonkin. This is the worst naval accident for the U.S. since World War II. 
I have to mention, since I've been neglectful, that of course I do look up some of the stuff on Wikipedia, but a great source for my uh, research in the historical context section of the podcast has been historyplace.com, which is timelines for the Vietnam War and several other events. Other happenings in July of 1967. On July 1st, Canada officially turns 100. On July 21st, the town of Winnicon, Wisconsin, announces secession from the United States because it's not included in the official maps and it declares war. Secession is then repealed the next day. This month had several race riots happen as well, uh, some of which have occurred in New Jersey, specifically Newark and Plainfield, but the most notable and largest was in Detroit from July 23rd to the 31st, which would leave 43 dead, 342 injured, and 1,400 buildings burned. There would be similar devastating race riots in Milwaukee on July 31st, which would lead to the shutdown of that city on August 1st, and then in Washington, D.C. on August 2nd. Incoming this month, we have ooh, we have two uh, long letters here, kind of like a couple issues ago. I want to I want to read these. Dear sirs, the cover of issue number fifteen is a gross insult to those of us who gave so much to try to bring it into the war. The bloated, disgusting, angry slob haranguing the soldier is nowhere close to symbolizing me or the conscientious people who chose to stand up and say no. I, too, lost loved ones and friends. We were harassed by the FBI. Our phones were tapped and our mail was opened. We are still on lists. As was so eloquently stated by the Senate committee during the Contra hearings, because a citizen objects to his or her government's policies, it is not a sign of lack of patriotism. We loved our country, but saw the tragedy before the main population did. For this, we were called communists. A fundamental feature of our system of government is... Is, that is unique in all the world is our right to speak out against those policies we see as wrong. Your story oversimplifies a great tragedy, that of soldiers caught up in a hopeless situation, trying to do what they felt was right, and those of us at home trying to be heard without being labeled traitors. For those of us who lived through it, there are wounds that ne- will never heal. Don't get me wrong. I defer to the ones who went to fight as having suffered more than I can ever imagine. Some of them suffer the deeper wounds of feeling they were betrayed by the government they stood up and risked to defend. My son, who subscribes to the NOM, and I have had many long discussions about that time with concerted efforts on my part to undo the damage our society does to young men by romanticizing war. I do not censor his reading material. I still read Marvel mags myself ever since I discovered in the 60s that they were psychedelic. Thanks for listening. Carolyn Blake of Rockford, Minnesota, Michigan. Second letter. Dear Doug Murray, Michael Higgins, et al. The NOM's greatest strength as a popular art form is also is, is also as visual history its greatest weakness. In your attempt to present the Vietnam period in an unbiased manner, you're inadvertently distorting the lesson to be learned from this especially tragic and immoral war. In Tim O'Brien's brilliant novel, Going After Cacciato, a character states that there are many wars in every single war, as there are soldiers who fought in it. Yet as the military was fond of saying, we can't lose sight of the big picture. In Nam, your portrayal of individual truths precludes the bigger truth of Vietnam. It's popular today to make fun of the 60s and its idealism. In Nam number 15, you do this beginning with the cover, then with the story presenting protesters as crazy mobs who don't understand what it's like to be shot at. Napalm, how many times did a napalm drop save our butts? Dow Chemical was less concerned with saving butts than with making bucks. Then we're supposed to feel sorry for Ed Marks because he didn't get a ticker tape parade and shed a tear for misfit Private Lewin because he was turned down for a tour of duty in Vietnam, a war and cause he believed in. Having lived through the 60s and recognizing the war's tragic, a tragic, terrible mistake, 
I have problems even today with seeing the good side of the Vietnam War as if it were a debate. Depicting history through the little truth of the individual soldier is admirable, but it's something like doing a book called Auschwitz and presenting the Nazi guards as people too, just doing their duty, trying to survive, being kind to their dogs while, and saying their prayers at night. Presenting this in an unbiased manner, even truthfully, misses the big picture of Auschwitz. There, isn't, there wasn't any good side. For the most part, I enjoy the nom and need to see, see a need to educate the younger generation as to the folly and horror of such a war resurfacing, pick a country, and the story of those returning to the world at a time when popular opinion was against the war is an important one. Unfortunately, nom number 15 wasn't that story. I'm still reading, hoping for better stories to come in the big picture to be revealed. Time Carter, Dreamwell Comics of Las Vegas, Nevada. Doug Murray has a long response to this. I'm going to read it. Obviously, in many ways, the wounds of the Vietnam War still have been healed. Before I continue, I make it clear that this is being written by me, Doug Murray. While I am the writer of the NOM, what I say here on the letter page does not necessarily represent the opinions of Marvel Comics or its editorial staff. Clear? Now, as to the letters above, right from the start, the NOM has tried to convey the Vietnam War as it was seen by the men who fought in it. As one of those men, and from the letters I got, not the only one, I went through a return to civilization just like that of Ed Marks. Perhaps I and those like me did not, quote, deserve a ticker tape parade. Certainly we deserved to be welcomed as what we were, young men who had fought a dirty and unpleasant war because our government had asked us to. Certainly I think it is barbarous and indefensible to say soldiers didn't deserve a welcome because the war was wrong. The soldiers didn't choose the war, they served it because they felt they had to, because their only alternatives were jail or fleeing the country they loved and honored, were honored by serving. Frankly, while I understand and admire some of those that fought against the war here in the States, I can find no sympathy whatsoever for those who reviled returning troops simply because they felt that those young men should not have fought. As for you, Mr. Carter, what is your big picture? Do you believe that each individual American must make his own choice on when and where to fight, and what is and is not a just war? There is a word for that. The word is anarchy. And the way that way lies the death and obliteration of everything even we, even you, hold dear. Your contention that napalm was bad because Dow Chemical made money on it is downright imbecilic. Do you try to make money with your quote-unquote Dreamwell comics? If so, does that automatically make them bad? Making money is part of the American way. If while making that money you do some good, and I feel that saving American troops' lives is good, then it is all for the better. Finally, your comparison of American GIs fighting a well-armed, determined, courageous enemy to guards at a Nazi death camp is beneath contempt. It is people like you that made the Vietnam vets' homecoming the shame it was. I should apologize to the rest of the readers for taking up this space and getting this involved. I frankly have my own doubts and questions about our involvement in the Vietnam War. However, the treatment of returning vets was inexcusable and is a personal sore point. Unreasoning and elitist tripe like that in Mr. Carter's letter still has the power to anger me beyond all perspective. Thanks for letting me get it off my chest. Doug Murray. I suppose today this would have been on a message board or a blog or something, but um, there's sort of a preservation going on here, like I said in the last couple of episodes, uh, that I love the letter column for because you do get opinions and you get this debate about Vietnam that if it were on a message board, it would still be out there, but we'd have to find it instead of kind of being right in here. Nom notes. Back on the block, back home, back on the street where it's safe. Bringing smoke, making trouble of all kinds. A brown bar, a second lieutenant, called that because the single gold bar, which became brown in camo, that was his rank insignia. Charlie, the Viet Cong, or the enemy. Decoration, a medal, a decoration, and a dress uniform. 
Dinky Dow, crazy, nuts in the head. Dust off, the helicopter pickup. Hat out, leave or move out. Hooches, houses, huts, places where you live. IG or Inspector General, the Army police, the army officer responsible for investigating anything and everything brought to his attention. The man who is supposed to uncover problems at the unit level. PX, Post Exchange, the military equivalent of a department store, where you could buy almost anything you needed from stereos to sodas. Sky Pilot, slang for the chaplain, the religious leader of the troops, and Ville is short for village. Adds this time around, we still got Captain Power. I still have no idea what it is. New England Comics again. Captain O is back with his O face for Olympic and prizes or cash. Pre-drawn 100 level dungeon. Star Games something. And then there's the same pin. This time we've got the pins with Daredevil, Wolverine, Spider-Man, Cap, Silver Surfer, and Venom. Or is that the black costume Spider-Man? That's the black costume Spider-Man. My bad. Marvel Supermart. Kind of the same ads for the most part. Another prizes or cash ad. Another hodgepodge ad. We have the Colossal Conflicts Trading Card Series. A 90-card all-new all-action pack series of Marvel's Greatest Battles, the Biggest Heroes Against the Baddest Villains. Oh, that's pretty cool. Baddest is misspelled, though. Okay, uh, bullpen bulletins. There's a profile of Michael Higgins. They're saying that... Uh, oh, well, this month, actually, Amazing Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, Web, Avengers, X-Men, X-Factor, New Mutants, Punisher, and Silver Surfer actually all went to a dollar. So it was that maybe DC was keeping their prices low for a while. And no change in format, contents of page count. Uh, economic considerations, and, and then they were talking about publishing matters. Speaking of publishing matters, uh, we'd also like to announce that a number of Marvel's all-direct books, those available only through direct distributors and not conventional newsstands, will undergoing a change of both price and format beginning this month. DP7, Starbrand, Cyforce Justice, and The Nom will be printed and packaged in the format used by Epic Books Video Jack and the Alien Legion. And will now set you back a buck and a quarter. We think the new format is really nifty. It will enable us to give you an even better package than ever before. Yes, those of you who did not live near a direct sales specialty store can subscribe to our direct-only title. See the subscription elsewhere in this magazine. You know, I could do some more research. You could probably do some more research and find out why why this they thought this was a good decision. I know that the price was going up, but again, the book. If Doug Murray was saying the book was selling well, why make it a direct-only title? There must have been some internal politics involved, especially since the other ones that they're talking about were all new universe titles that were bound to be canceled. Um, I'm looking to see if I can find one in the in the this week, but I don't know what's out this week. Uh, Strike Force Mortuary is number eighteen. I think that's the last one, so or near the last one of that. So, Sci uh, Force, I don't see it. So, anyway, comic book convention, greatest Eastern conventions, comic book uh, hodgepodge ad. Um, nothing really exciting in there. Uh, the subscription ad this month has Doc Ock standing behind a jail cell, jail cell cl- clutching the bars and obviously just gritting his teeth. Um, the back page, the back cover is the beat bond at his own game. Um, top secret slash SI game, espionage role-playing game. And the inside cover, back cover, is a free offer. F- well, you got to put $1 in the mail. But for a Konami game poster, and you can order a, just a big-sized poster of Castlevania Double Dribble, Goonies 2 Gradius, Russian Attack, Stinger, Top Gun, Track and Field, uh, Contra, uh, a bunch of other ones. I, You know what? I wanted that Contra poster when I was a kid. 
I wanted the Contra one, and I totally would have taken the Gradius one too, even though I didn't play Gradius. Um, maybe even the Top Gun one as well. But that Contra poster was pretty sweet, and, and so was the Top Gun video game one. So why didn't I ever do this? Who the heck knows? Anyway, that's it for this time around. Uh, next time I'm going to give you... Uh, we're going to take a break from covering uh, the comic book uh, because we're at the end of a, a storyline here and I thought maybe it would be nice for another sp- special episode. So we're going to be taking a look at one of the most famous films about the Vietnam War and that is Oliver Stone's 1986 Best Picture winner, Platoon. Until then, thanks for listening. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom.